Well, aren't you glad you came to church today? And aren't you glad you found us online? I'm glad. I'm glad you came, and I'm glad you found us, and I'm glad I was able to come and worship with my church family today. And uh, I hope you're enjoying our series. It's titled The You Next to You. I always pray that uh, I'll be done preaching before you're done listening. And that applies not just to a specific message, but to a series as well. And uh, this week was supposed to be the last week of our You Next to You series. And then next week, Pastor Keith was going to share uh, just kind of a standalone message. And then we were going to launch a new series as we transition to two services at the end of the month. And uh, we have said many times over the last six, seven months, blessed are the flexible, for they will not be bent out of shape. And so we are being flexible. Um, I want to share with you just as a matter of prayer that uh, Pastor Keith and Sandra, uh, Keith uh, was diagnosed with COVID this last week, and his symptoms have been minor thus far, um, but he is in that contagious period, and they're awaiting test results for Sandra They don't want you to be alarmed, Uh, but that's why they're not here this week, and that's why Keith won't be preaching next week. And as I looked at how I was trying to cram about 45 minutes of of content into this final message, I thought, oh, I could actually split that into two messages that would actually work really, really well, and I wouldn't have to trim, and I wouldn't run past uh, my time slot here. So that is the plan, and if you have been loving the you next to you, extra credit. You get a little more. And if you haven't been loving the you next to you, come anyway, because it'll be the last one, and we will start something new following that. But I want to open, uh, I was listening to a uh, sermon by Tim Keller. He's one of my favorite preachers. I listen to him a lot. I find that it's really important for me as a pastor to listen to other pastors, to not only give out, but to also receive. And he's one of my favorite to listen to. And he said something in a message uh, that I listened to this past week that there are three types of people in the world. And anytime I hear somebody make a reductive statement like that, it has my attention. Really? Just three? Are you sure there's not more? But he explained that there are religious, irreligious, and Christians. Those are the three types of people. And you might think, well, there's only two, religious and irreligious. But if you've been a part of our congregation these last four or five weeks, as we've been talking about the you next to you, we have been sort of dividing the line between religion and a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the way that he explained this idea that there are three types of people in the world, religious, irreligious, and Christian, really fit with that idea um, that we really are to be distinct as Christians. We are neither religious nor irreligious. We have certain trappings of religion that are part of our Christian faith, but the sole source of our hope is in Jesus Christ and his all-sufficient work on the cross on our behalf. And so we put our hope and our faith in that. And so he described religious people as those who are trying to appease a god or gods, very similar language that I have used, in order to win their favor and meet their needs. And so if you are a religious person, you are doing things to try to make God happy so that he will protect you, so that he will bless you, so that he will give you the things that you want. Chief among them, you would think, would be salvation. And the emphasis there is on you as the person who is seeking to gain valuable things from God. 
Irreligious people, on the other hand, would be in the other direction. They would say there is no God, or if there is a God, we can't know him in our finite minds. Um, and so these would be atheists. These would be those who maybe have just given up. They say, if there is a God, I can't please him. I can't figure out what he wants, and I can't do it. And again, the emphasis is on ourselves. So the greatest sort of evidence for uh, religion would be those who are doing more and trying harder, especially those who maybe have sought to, to engage in holy war or uh, to take the handle that they have on truth and try to broadly apply it to everyone else. And so throughout Christian history, as well as other histories of other religions, when it gets to its full and final conclusion, we find people doing terrible things in the name of God. And so you would think it would be just the opposite for irreligious people, and yet that's not the case either. The greatest evidence against an irreligious approach would be all the killing and violence done in the name of atheism or atheist or Marxist regimes over time. Some of the most violent genocides that have ever taken place have taken place by irreligious or people who say there is no God, and if there is a God, he cannot be known. And so the Christian solution becomes the solution that we need in order to prove the love and grace of God. The Christian says it cannot be earned. You cannot do enough to earn God's favor. God gives his favor to us freely as an act of grace. You can't earn it, but we desperately need it. And so we throw ourselves at the feet of a merciful God who has revealed the full breadth and depth of his mercy and his grace in the person of Jesus Christ, that he loves us, that he has saved us, and that he has redeemed us who are in Christ. And we celebrate the miracle of grace. And so, as we have said multiple times throughout this series, the focus of religion and irreligion, we'll add now, is you. But the focus of Christianity is the people around you. That once you become a Christian, the focus is on the people who are not yet Christians. That we become co-laborers with God and we join forces with God. We join forces with Christ in making his appeal to be reconciled to God through this miraculous grace that is presented to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And the best evidence for the truth of grace is every act of selfless love that has ever been done in Jesus' name. You see, Jesus came and brought the fullness of God's grace to us. He was fully human. He was fully divine. He was full of grace and truth. He was the truth of God, the true word of God, and he was the full expression of the grace of God. And grace is such an important word. That's why we opened by singing about it. And it's been the theme of several of our songs. And, and we'll close singing about it. And I heard a definition in this Tim Keller sermon of grace that really unlocked something for me. I've always heard of it as God's unmerited favor. But he added an element to the definition of grace. That true grace, grace in its truest form, is an undeserved gift given by an unobligated giver. That's grace. When we receive undeservingly a gift that God is not obligated to give, he gives it because he loves us. He gives it because he cares for us. He gives it because he desires to bless us and to redeem us. And so the best evidence of Christianity is every selfless act of love done in Jesus' name. 
And so Christianity would point to churches and to hospitals and to mission fields and to orphanages and to charities. The big, the little, and everything in between. Every act of selfless love given by an unobligated giver to an undeserving recipient is proof of God's love to us through Christ and our love to the people around us. And so just to recap quickly, if you're joining us late, if you've missed a week or two, they're all available online. You can go to the Linwood Church YouTube page or Facebook page, or you can go to our website and the media tab and listen uh, there. But we started out by talking about what's true about you, that you are God's beloved, that every single person in this world is beloved by God. And those who have come into the family of God through Christ are his beloved children. And God desires that that would describe every person alive today. So that is why in week two, we had to shift the focus. We had to shift the focus from ourselves, which is a religious view, to the Christian view where we as ambassadors for Christ now make our lives about the people around us. The focus of religion is you, but the focus of Christianity is the you next to you. And then in week three, we looked at the woes that Jesus pronounces. This was not necessarily something he did very often. (laughs) He didn't pronounce a lot of woes. But when he did, it gave us some real insight into what turned Jesus away, what got in his face he needed to address it that strongly. And we find that using religion to keep people away or developing spiritual pride which is, if you take religion all the way to its, its extreme, you develop spiritual pride. But if you follow Christ and you take following Christ to an extreme, you develop a radical humility because Jesus had radical humility. Radical meaning to the root, to the core of who he was, was a humility that thought of others first. That's what humility really means. It's to put others first. And so last week, we started to flesh this out. And how far do we really need to take this whole love thing, love your neighbor thing? And uh, we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we realized that when Jesus wraps up that parable of the Good Samaritan, he makes it crystal clear that religion asks, who is my neighbor? Where does my obligation to love my neighbor stop? Whereas Christianity asks, to whom can I be a neighbor? To whom can I bless in God's name? To whom can I show grace and mercy and love in the name of Christ? And that's where we're going to pick up today. The last phrase in that story of the Good Samaritan is when Jesus tells the teacher of the religious law, go and do likewise. Go and show mercy. Go and be merciful. He's basically saying, go, love. That's our title today. Go, And love. Go out into that world and love people in Jesus' name. Go show love to people. Go out there and show love to people who are not in here so that the people out there will be in here. And then they can go out and love people who are not in here. And you see how this is designed to work. And as we think about loving our neighbor, you have to think about the golden rule. Has anybody ever heard of the golden rule? How many of you have children and have told your children the golden rule? When I was talking about this and mentioning, sometimes Owen will come up and he will 
watch me or see what I'm doing while I'm working on my sermon slides. And I happen to be typing out the slide with the golden rule. And he's like, I can read all those words. And I know that you've told us that a lot. (laughs) You've told us to treat others the way you want to be treated, right? How many of you as parents, grandparents have said that over and over and over? If I had a nickel for every time, we'd probably have our mortgage paid off by now. But that teaching, the golden rule, comes in the context of a larger teaching that is rooted in the Sermon on the Mount. But we're going to look at it from Luke's version uh, because there's a lot of similarities between Luke 6 and Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount. But when Luke is speaking about this and of speaking specifically about love, loving our neighbors, he takes neighbor even beyond the people next door that you may or may not like. He takes neighbor and applies it to a specific group of people that we're going to look at today. And we find this in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. So if you want to turn there, you can find that in one of the pew Bibles that are in the seats in front of you. If you want to find a, a Bible online and read along, otherwise it's going to be on the screen behind me. But in Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. How many of you have a cloak and a tunic? Outer coat, inner clothing. We can, we can get there contextually. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect full repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Heavenly Father is merciful." Now, I kind of wish, I don't know about you, I'll just, I'll just enter into a confessional moment here. I kind of wish he just said, be merciful. And then we could kind of set the criteria ourselves, right? But he doesn't. He says, be merciful even as your heavenly Father is merciful. So that's the standard for our mercy. That's the standard for our love is to look at the way God loves us. And he's crazy about you. Did you realize that? He's crazy about you. He looks at you and he smiles. And he says, that's my kid. That's one that I created. I was there when you took your first breath. And he is motivated with the irrational, radical love of a a parent for their child. Times a million to the millionth factor. His love for you is infinite. His desire for you to be with him forever is infinite. And that is true for the you next to you as well. He's crazy about them too. Even your enemies. 
Even if you don't have people that you're in regular conflict with or confrontation with, but you have people that you maybe don't care so much for or you don't like to be around or you avoid them when you can or you don't like the way they talk or the way they vote or the way that they do whatever it is that they do, God loves them too. He's crazy about them too. And here's the good news. God has never asked you to love anybody he doesn't love. He has never asked you to love someone that he doesn't love first. But he does ask us to love everyone that he does love. And that's where the rubber meets the road. And that's where it gets a little bit challenging. And so, a really helpful question, one that I've mentioned before, one that was popular as anything that has ever come into Christianity about 20 years ago, was the question, what would Jesus do? We were talking about this in my discipleship group this last week, that 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 question really is at the crux of following Christ. And unfortunately, it became a little trivialized, and it got really big, and then it kind of dropped off people's radar. But if we would ask that question, and I say this a lot, if we would ask that question on a regular basis, like daily, multiple times throughout the day, whenever we kind of get to a point where we're not quite sure what we should do, if we say, well, what would Jesus do? And then we do that. We would be transformed into the image of Christ. But there's a couple caveats with that, right? If we're going to be able to answer the question, what would Jesus do? We're going to have to know what Jesus did. And that's where this book comes in. That's where reading the Bible on a regular basis gives us insight and information about the mind and the heart of God. And reading the Gospels on a regular basis helps us to see this is what Jesus did. These are the kinds of things Jesus did. These are the ways that he interacted with people. And we will see very clearly that Jesus did better to others than they ever did to him. He knew exactly what they were going to do to him. And he mentioned it multiple times before he ever got to Jerusalem for that final week of his life. He knew what was coming. And he did better to every single person who has ever lived than they would ever do to him. And he set an example for us. If we know what he did, then we choose to do what he did. And as we do, we will become disciples of Christ. We'll become followers, learners, apprentices of Christ. My favorite definition of discipleship comes from Dallas Willard, who said that that discipleship is simply learning to live as Jesus would if he were me. That's what discipleship is. If Jesus was the pastor of Linwood Church, what would he do? How would he interact with the various people here? How would he be a husband to, uh, to my wife? How would he be a father to my children? And as I ask those questions and I seek to do what Jesus would do if he were me, then I become a disciple of Christ, a more faithful disciple. And the overlap of Jesus's way of being matches my way of being more and more completely. And so, this is a great place to start. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36, is a great place to start if you want to answer the question, what would Jesus do? We just read what Jesus said to do. And if you look at the verbs in this passage, I counted nine of them just in the first chunk. Love, People do good, bless, pray, turn the cheek, don't resist, give, lend, and be merciful. And even, in, in this passage specifically, towards our enemies, towards those who have it out for us, towards those who aren't here for us, who aren't here to bless us and to seek our good. But if we can master those nine things, just as Jesus did when all humanity was an enemy of God and was participating in the crucifixion of God himself in the person of Christ, he still loved them, did good for them, blessed them, prayed for them, turned the other cheek, didn't resist them, gave, landed, and was merciful to them. 
That's grace. That's an undeserved gift from an unobligated giver. And so when we read this passage, these 10 verses, and we see Jesus consistently, authentically, and perfectly doing these, he sets the model for us. And he gives us a phenomenal place to start as we seek to go and love. And so our bottom line today is, is a great little line from Andy Stanley uh, that I heard in like a great bottom line. You hear it once, you remember it for life. When you don't know what to do, ask what love requires of you. When you don't know what to do and you're trying to figure out, it's really similar to the question, what would Jesus do? Because the Bible tells us that God is love and that Jesus is God. So in a way, Jesus is love. So when you don't know what to do, ask what love requires of you. When you don't know what to do, ask what Jesus requires of you. And then, here's the kicker, do it. Do it. When you figure out the answer of what love requires of you, of what faith in Christ requires of you, of what having thrown your life on his life requires of you, then you do it. And it may require something like forgiveness. Often that's what love requires of us, is to forgive. And you're never more like Christ than when you forgive. One of the last things he said after they had nailed him to a cross, hands and feet to a cross, and put that cross in the ground and hung him on it so that he was slowly suffocating while people jeered him and spat upon him. One of the last things he said was, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. We're never more like Christ than when we forgive. Sometimes love will require that we be kind, that we choose to be kind. You know, affection is not always in our power, but kindness is. Kindness is a choice. You don't have to feel someone for the, something for the person you're kind to. You can just choose to be kind. Maybe it means being present, like fully present, putting the phone away, listening, speaking back, empathizing, not just sympathizing, but empathizing with someone and coming in into the pain and feeling the pain with them and letting them know you are not alone in your pain. That's one of the beauties of the cross is that God came down and took on the fullness of human pain so that we would never be alone in pain because we could look to the cross and see Jesus there with us in the midst of the pain and the sorrow and the suffering. Love might require you to advocate for someone who has no voice, someone who, who does not know the goodness and grace of God, someone who is marginalized by society. It may cause, require you to advocate for those who do not have a voice. We see this in the Old Testament and the New Testament, to care for widows and orphans, to care for those who do not have someone strong to advocate for them on their behalf. Love might require you to shut down the gossip, whether it's coming from you or to you. To recognize it and to say, we're not doing that. We're not playing the gossip game. I don't want to participate. And that can be hard. Trust me, I've been on, I've been on the receiving end of gossip. And to my own sorrow, I've probably been on the giving end of gossip. And, and to recognize that and to shut it down can be really, really challenging. But that might be what love requires. It might just be to not complain. To recognize when your preference has not been met and choose not to complain about that. That might be what love requires. 
Love might require you to overtip at lunch today. Maybe the service is terrible. Maybe the food is cold. Maybe the atmosphere is lacking. And love requires you to overtip. I remember a time uh, when we were living on a budget, and we're still living on a budget, so it wasn't that long ago. But this specific time was 20 years ago. And we went to Outback, and we didn't have enough money for steak. So we just wanted to get the fries. Have you ever had the fries at Outback, the Aussie cheese fries? They just take a whole huge thing of fries, and they cover it in cheese and bacon and ranch dressing. And it's amazing, and it's a meal for two. That's the appetizer, right? And so we got there, and we said, well, actually, we're just going to order an appetizer and a dessert to share. And you could see the face fall on the waitress. And I was like, this is going to be a rough hour that we're going to spend here with this waitress that just saw her tip go from, you know, 10 to 15 bucks to two based on, you know, 10% or 15%. And I said, but we're going to go ahead and tip you as if we had ordered a full meal. So don't worry about that. She was a delight. The entire meal, she was a delight. And when we gave her a $10 tip on a $16 check, it gave us some delight as well to recognize that table does represent her income. And why punish her because the food is cold or because the atmosphere is lacking? If the service is terrible, yeah, maybe. But what would Jesus do? Would he stiffer on the tip? No, he would give her the tip. He would over tip as an act of love and grace and mercy. Love might require you to share something that you have with others. Another famous bottom line from Veggie Tales: if you have enough to share, you have enough to spare. I'm sorry, if you have enough to spare, I slaughtered it. It was a great bottom line, and I ruined it. <laughs> if you have enough to spare, you have enough to share, right? How many times have we told our kids that? If you have enough to spare, you have enough to share. Go home, look in your pantry. Do you have enough to spare? Do you have more than you need for lunch? Then you have enough to share, and love might require you to share. And usually about this point in a conversation, somebody will ask me, well, what about, what about confronting people and speaking the truth? Jesus did that too. Do I get to do that? And if that's in your mind, you need to check your heart. <laughs> that might be what's required of you sometimes, but it's probably less often than you think. And when you do, you need to make sure you speak the truth in love. You see, people, Christians like to talk about righteous indignation, but we forget we're not righteous. We get his righteousness. It's given to us. We don't have a righteousness apart from Christ, so he's the one that gets to do the indignation, not me. And when we do speak the truth, we need to make sure we speak the truth in love. That phrase comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, when Paul is writing to a group of Christians at the church in Ephesus, and that letter got broadly circulated. And he says, you know, instead of, you know, beating each other over the head with truth, speak the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head. That is Christ. As we speak the truth in love, we grow up into Christ. And so if you do feel called upon and led by the Holy Spirit, not necessarily by current events or by your preference not getting met, but when you feel led by the Holy Spirit to speak the truth in love, make sure it's true, whatever you choose to say, and make sure you say it in love, like genuine love. Agape love is the word there where we have the other person's best interest in mind, not our own. And so we speak the truth and we speak the truth in love because what would Jesus do? He was full of grace and truth. And he had to confront people sometimes, but he always had their best interest in mind. And 
90% of the time, that speaking the truth in love sounded more like, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more, than the few tongue lashings he gave the Pharisees who were using religion to elevate themselves and suppress people. It really ticked Jesus off. Don't do that. He might speak the truth in love to you in a way that you don't like. But most of the time, when Jesus was speaking the truth in love, it sounded like, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. And, and that should be the way that we speak the truth in love. And there's a powerful Tim Keller quote that I found a long time ago and I have saved and I have referred to a number of times. And it speaks to this issue specifically. It says, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms, but it keeps us in denial about our flaws. If we only ever speak love and never bring truth into the mix, then it's just sentimentality. We're just expressing a sentiment that may or may not be truth. And truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but it does so in such a way that we cannot really hear it. And that's why Jesus came full of grace and truth, full of love and truth, and he perfectly blended the two. And as we become more and more like Christ, we'll be able to speak the truth in love. And if you've got to land on one side or the other, I would encourage you to land on the side of love. Because Jesus' last command, when he said in John 13, a new command I give you, like the night before he died, it wasn't go speak the truth. It was go love. Go love one another. And so if we apply the golden rule that we started with to the idea of speaking the truth in love, if you are compelled by the Holy Spirit to speak the truth in love to someone, ask yourself first, how would I like to be confronted on this issue? How would I like to receive correction or rebuke on this issue? By whom? And would I like that to be in or outside of the context of an actual loving relationship? And when you get yourself to the point where you can speak the truth in love, that's the time to move forward. There have been a lot of times where I have felt compelled and I found out I wasn't compelled by the Holy Spirit. I was compelled by something else. And it took me so long to get to the truth and to be able to speak it in love that I didn't ever get there. I realized that wasn't true. That was my personal preference. That wasn't the Spirit of God compelling me to go and to speak the truth in love. And that's just one example. Bottom line, when you don't know what to do, ask what love requires of you. Ask what Jesus would do. Receive his love and then go love. Go. Love. Those are our marching orders. And as you prepare to go from this place today, ask yourself, what does love require of me? What does love require of me? And then do it. As we close, we're going to focus on God's amazing grace again and think about his undeserved favor as an unobligated giver. And as we do, I encourage you to respond in faith to his love, to his grace, and to open yourself to it anew and afresh. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for giving when you didn't have to give. We thank you for the undeserved favor that you have shown each and every one of us. Whether we have received it or not, you have given it to us. You have extended it to us. 
And we pray, Lord, that we would be a people who allow that love to flow through us to others. And so as we respond, may we respond in faith. And may we choose to go in love in your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray.